Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. We recently put on a conference at High Point Church called Sexuality Everywhere. We were looking at the question, how can we glorify Jesus as sexual beings? As a part of that, we had breakouts on all sorts of topics. This particular breakout was on bonding, understanding the natural relationship between care, love, and sex put on by Father Gregory Jensen. Thanks for listening. It's great to be here today. That you guys could all make it. Um, there is handouts in the back. Uh, feel free to take um, one. Um, if we run out, I'll try to get more printed. Um, and yeah, um, I'll introduce Father Gregory. He's the pastor of St. Cyril and Methodius Ukrainian Orthodox Mission in Madison and chaplain for Orthodox students at the UW of Madison. And he'll be our speaker for this breakout session. So. Here he is. All right. Well, that, that, that's, 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 that's very nice. I, my own congregation rarely applauds for me. <laughs> so, uh, and hopefully they will not hear the audio of this and discover I criticized them. So if, if we could, let us pray. Lord, Lord have, let's pray, Lord, Lord, have mercy. Lord, who sent down your Holy Spirit in the third hour to your apostles, take not your spirit from us, but rather restore your spirit in us, who pray to you, O good one. As you blessed, O Christ our God, the fishermen, and made them most wise by sending down your Holy Spirit. Send down your Holy Spirit upon us, that like them we may capture the whole world in our nets and give glory to you, who are the lover of mankind. Amen. Our prayers are different than yours. (laughs) They tend to be longer um, and, and somewhat more structured. I had a friend criticize me once time. He said, wow, your prayers are just stale. I said, when was the last time you got tired of hearing happy birthday or Merry Christmas? <laughs> you know, some things are made better by repetition. So uh, the topic I've been giving is uh, bonding, understanding the natural relationship between care, love, and, and sex. And I'll, I'll, I'll be direct with you. Because this is a, a sort of a very large group, a very mixed group, uh, most of what I'm going to talk about is going, for lack of a better way to put it, is sort of a foundational nature. So um, those of you who, are, who have sort of interest toward the end of the, that, that subtitle, you'll be able to make connections. Uh, but one of the things that had, was mentioned to me was that besides being a mixed group, men and women, but also be different ages. And one of the, the things that really does concern me about how we deal with these topics, especially with high school and college students, is that we, we typically violate the modesty of children. We, we impose upon them ideas and images that uh, emotionally, morally, and spiritually, they're, they're not equipped to integrate. Um, I used to be a therapist before I was a priest a, a very long time ago. And mostly I worked with, um, oh, they were felons. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. It's, yeah, now we were doing therapy for kids who were probably just going to go to prison anyway. But you know, every once in a while you could you could save one, and it was always sort of distressing to me the the amount of information they had about human sexuality and the the poverty of information that they had about relationships. Um, and this isn't good. I, I Jay mentioned I'm the I'm a chaplain for the Orthodox students at the University of Wisconsin, and this is my third or fourth university. Uh, but one of the things I've noticed, and I, I talk about this with my students is that they have a lot of biological information, but they are the single worst flirters I have ever seen in my life. 
you know, and it's not that they're bad kids, but that no one has taught them the art of expressing admiration and attraction without then it being an overture to possession. Uh, to, to, this, is why I, this is why I like old movies from the 30s and 40s. I am a, a proponent of the Thin Man series, by the way. I think Myrna Loy is amazing, and whoever that other guy is, I don't know who he is. But she's smart, and she's sexy, and she's sassy, and inexplicably, she's sober in the amount she drinks every day. But those are good movies to show. Okay, it's not for the drinking, but, but especially for young women to show how to be, in fact, to stand up to a man and match him. And for men, by the way, to show them that, no, no, you, you want to be with someone who's smart and independent. It is not to your advantage to be with someone who's stupid and dependent does not reflect well on you. I got me a stupid one. <laughs> Good for you, son. Good for you. So what we're going to talk about today is, is bonding and, yeah. I just say stuff. Do not allow the 14th century attire to confuse you. Okay? I'm like Pastor Nick, but without filters. So, but we're going to talk about bonding and in the, in the Christian tradition, when we talk about bonding, what we're really talking about is, is, is friendship. This is what bonding means for us as, as Christians. It means that we are, we are friends. And to be a friend means that we love and we care for the other person. And it's only within the unique friendship of marriage that man and woman, as husband and wife, rightly come together in conjugal intimacy. The difficulty that we have, and it's not just a difficulty with college students, but most of us have a very impoverished notion of friendship, a very thin idea of friendship. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to talk for about, on friendship for about 40 minutes, 35 minutes, so that we have 20, 30 minutes for questions, if that's okay. All right. Um, if I say thing that, something that doesn't make sense uh, and you want to ask a question in the middle, that, 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 that's fine too. Like I said, I used to work with gang kids and I, I was the group therapist primarily. So when I see a large group of people whose faces suddenly become neutral, yeah, it scares me. <laughs> so, and a lot of times what happens is when we have a question, we, our faces go blank and we just sort of look at the speaker hoping that it will catch on. When I see your face, I'm going to say, ah, that person doesn't understand and I'm going to try to explain it again. And it's just, it's just not good. So you get the idea. So ask a question if you need to. So what are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to start with the, the theory of friendship. And what is sort of the classical Western and Christian understanding of being a friend? And then we're going to go to the practice of being a friend. How is it that we grow in the virtues and the disciplines that we need in order to be a friend. So, with regard to the theory of friendship, I'm going to start with Aristotle. I love Aristotle. Aristotle is my guy. I used to teach undergraduates when my wife was in law school, and um, I would give my undergraduates Aristotle and they would complain bitterly. And mostly they would complain bitterly because Aristotle is hard. And I would always tell them the same thing. We have been reading Aristotle for 25 centuries. And if the Lord Jesus has not returned before, we will be reading him 25 centuries from now. Evidently, then, to go on to point out that they read garbage in their freshman writing class was inappropriate professionally. Um, but it was true. But Aristotle is wonderful. 
he is the philosopher of common sense and, 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 and balance. After we've looked at friendship and Aristotle, we're going to go to St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. And Augustine is going to tell us how friendships go wrong. And just to anticipate, my, my friendships go wrong because I don't so much love the person, but I love my idea of the person. I fall in love with a picture that I have of you. So between Aristotle and Augustine, this will give us a good foundation about what we mean by friendship. And we'll turn in the second half of our conversation to, well, how, how to be a friend. And that's the practice of friendship. One of the things that's very difficult for people to understand about Christian morality is that our, the Christian understanding of the moral life is teleological. I teach uh, social ethics at our seminary in New Jersey for my sins or theirs, it's not abundantly clear at this point. But when we talk about Christian morality as teleological, we mean that the, the moral goodness of an action or a, an object is determined by how closely it conforms to God's intention. In other words, I don't care what you're feeling. I don't care what you intended. What matters is what is objectively the case. That sounds rather harsh, but it, it actually works out to our advantage. So we're going to start with what friendship is. And friendship is a virtue. It's a habit of thought and action. And so we're going to look at the virtues that friendship requires. And this will give us the object that we're aiming at. We're going to know then, through the virtues, the kind of person we need to be in order to really be a friend. Then we'll talk about, or I'll talk with you about, the spiritual disciplines that friendships require. Um, and, and specifically, I'm thinking about the, 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 the spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and, and manual labor. These tell us how to reach our goal, how to be a friend, how to stop falling in love with the picture we have of the other person. Like the virtues that we'll talk about, and those are going to be poverty, chastity, obedience, and, and stability, the spiritual disciplines that I'll talk about are primarily drawn from the orthodox monastic tradition. Uh, I know I look like a monk. I'm actually a married priest. been married for 33, 34 years. So, um, but we just dress like this. Um, <laughs> After 9-11, it was a source of great constraint to TSA whenever I got on the plane. Would you take that off? No. Please? Not without dinner and a movie. <laughs> Life tip, TSA has no sense of humor. <laughs> My brother-in-law's a cop. I understand why, but, you know. So, so let's talk a little bit about the theory of friendship. For Aristotle, there are three types of friendships. The friendship of utility, of pleasure and the good. So let's look at all of those each in turn. For those of you keeping score at home, this is from the Nicomachean Ethics, book eight. My students would give me that same look too. It's like, okay, yay. So Aristotle, the friendship of utility. Basically a friendship of utility is a, is a relationship based around a shared project or goal. You know, for example, you have friends at work. You have your work friends. And that's, that, for Aristotle, that's, that's a good thing. That's a marvelous thing. Anyone involved in evangelism or youth work? Real quick. 
One of the things you'll discover like with uh, high school students, college students, if you can get them working together on a common project, that can be evangelically very helpful. That creates them an openness to something deeper. But for Aristotle, the first form of friendship is the friendship of utility. The second friendship is the friendship of pleasure. If utility is about, is about a common project, the friendship of pleasure is a, based around the fact that there's something in you that I like. You're funny. You have interesting ideas about politics or economics. I, I kind of like that we can do a Bible study together. There are things in your character that I find attractive. Now these kinds of friendships, utility and pleasure, are not immoral. In fact, they are very good, but they are immature. And for Aristotle, what makes them immature is that they are not stable. The fact of the matter is, if our relationship is built around a common project, that project will come to an end. And when it does, so does the friendship. Likewise, pleasure, friendships of pleasure. You know, there comes a point where the person just isn't that funny anymore. You know, we, we grow out. Think about the friends that you had in high school who you thought were amazing and now you think are embarrassing. That's the problem with a friendship of pleasure. We, we grow older. The really best friendship for Aristotle is the friendship of the good. And what he means by that is this. I recognize in you something of moral excellence. It's not just that you can help me do stuff. It's not just that you're funny or witty, but that you are a good person. And seeing that in you, I want this for myself. I want to become a good person. And that virtue, that, that, uh, that seeing moral goodness or moral excellence is reciprocated. Not only do I see something of moral excellence in you, you see something of moral excellence in me. And this is some of the, one of the things that's often so hard for people to understand, that friendship in the full sense of the word, word is only possible between people who are virtuous. I cannot be friends with someone who is vice-ridden or who is immoral. I can care for them, I can be concerned about them, I can even love them, but I can't be friends with them because the absence of virtue makes the relationship inherently unstable. Or as my sisters will say, too much drama. <laughs> so does that make sense, first of all? Yeah. Uh, yay! Oh, you're responding, that's good, all right. That's also something my congregation doesn't do in the sermon. So. <laughs> Though two weeks ago, we have a little boy, he's three years old. David decided that my sermon was the best thing he'd ever heard, so he began to repeat it. <laughs> Full disclosure, just a little life hint for those of you who do preach, you cannot compete with a three-year-old blonde-headed boy. <laughs> They're just going to listen to him. So how do friendships go wrong? Well, that's St. Augustine. For St. Augustine, friendship in Christ is the highest of all earthly loves. There is no better love for Aristotle than to be friends in Christ. The problem is, just because friendship in Christ is the greatest earthly love, 
It's not the greatest love. The greatest love is, in fact, to love Christ. We, we lose track of that sometimes. But we have to keep that in mind. The greatest love that we can have is to love Jesus Christ. So even though friendship is a great earthly love, even though it is the second best love after love of Christ, it can still go wrong. And it can go wrong because it's earthly, because it is something for this life. And this life is marked always by change. Sometimes when I was a therapist, people would, parents, usually the student of my clients would say, I don't want things to change. Then you want to be dead. I mean, but this is, yeah, that's how you don't change. You die. God's love for us and our love for him, this is, this though is, is, is really what we're aiming at. Which is why at the end of John's gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, I call you servants no longer, but friends. Because servants know not what their master is about. We have, in Christ, a great intimacy with God because now we know what God is about. We're called by Jesus to be friends with God, who is our friend. And in Christ, we are called then to be friends with one another. Put slightly differently, at least in part, the credibility of the gospel rests on the quality of our friendships with one another. Because what does Jesus say? By this all men will know that you are my disciples because... Okay, the fact that I use the New King James and most of you probably use NIV does not necessarily present an an insurmountable hermeneutical problem. (laughs) But in our fallen world, we often experience the sharp pain caused by the absence of friendship. And in fact, sometimes we feel a terrible torment and sorrow when what we imagined but a moment ago was a friendship has now fallen apart or has led us astray. For Augustine, grief is the agony my soul experiences when friendship is either absent or betrayed. Why do we grieve? Well, Augustine says we grieve because we don't love each other rightly. We are supposed to love our friends, but not as if they would never die. I fall in love with someone, and I imagine that they possess all perfections. For Augustine, that's simply another way of saying I fall in love with someone because I wrongly imagine that they are God, that they will never sin, that they will never fail, that they will never die, that they will never disappoint me. Human friendship, no matter how wonderful it is, is not eternal. And the sin is not that I fail to love, but that I seek a happiness from the other person that they cannot give me. When a couple comes to me and they want to get married and there's always at one point one of them will say, 
this person completes me. No, no, that's not true. This person makes me happy. No, that's not true either. None of this is true. God completes me. God makes me happy. And God in his infinite mercy and love for mankind has brought this person into my life. You see the difference. A debilitating grief is a sign that love has gone wrong. Of, of seeking ultimate happiness in what is, is merely temporary or temporal. Ironically, we discover in Augustine that the more beautiful the friendship, the deeper the grief. The more I really, really imagine this person is what I've been looking, who I've been looking for for all my life, when that goes wrong, the grief is almost unbearable. And wrong doesn't even necessarily mean that they, the, the relationship ends. It just means that the relationship changes. I hear this sometimes when I talk to married couples. He's not the man I married. Well, thank God, you were 20. <laughs> it would be creepy. You are 56. <laughs> you know. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so how do friendships go wrong? Well, I've, just, I've given you a, a little bit about, about it, but in book four of the Confessions, Augustine has this marvelous story he, about his relationship with an unnamed friend. And he says, while the, the relationship fell short of true friendship, because he says true friendship is only genuine when you bind yourself together with people who cleave to you through the charity poured abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, he's clear that the relationship is nevertheless a loving and warm relationship. Tragically, only a year after meeting his friend, his friend contracts the fever and dies. And so Augustine says to God, you took him from this life after barely a year's friendship, a friendship sweeter to me than any sweetness I had known in all my life. Augustine is inconsolable. It's worth quoting the whole of what Augustine says. This is one of my favorite passages in the Confessions. Black grief closed over my heart, and wherever I looked, I saw only death. My native land was a torment to me, and my father's house, unbelievable misery. Everything I had shared with my friend turned into hideous anguish without him. My eyes sought him everywhere, but he was missing. I hated all things because they held him not. You could no more say to me, look, here he comes, as they had been wont to do in his lifetime, before he had been taken away. Augustine grows to hate the streets and the buildings of his hometown because they no longer remind him that his fr absent friend will soon be back. All he sees is sorrow and grief. His grief is so deep that Augustine no longer even knows who he is. And while his faith in God is still very immature at this point in his life, what little faith he has begins to slip away. I became, he said, an enigma to myself. I questioned my soul, demanding why it was sorrowful and why it was so, disquiet, it so disquieted me, but it had no answer. If I bade it, trust in God, it rightly disobeyed me, for the man it held so dear and lost was more real and more lovable than any fantasy about God in which it was bidden to trust. Weeping alone brought me solace and took my friend's place as the only comfort of my soul. 
this friendship comes to an end because of death, and Augustine is shattered. He has lost his faith in God. He has lost any sense of himself. Later, in Book 8, he says, he explains what happened. It was no iron chain imposed by anyone else that fettered me, but the iron of my own will. The enemy had my power of willing in his clutches, and from it he forged a chain to bind me. The truth is that disordered lusts spring from a perverted will. When lust is pandered to, a habit is formed. When the habit is not checked, it hardens into compulsion. There were like interlinking rings forming what I have described as a chain, and my harsh servitude used it to keep me under duress. And so the two wills fought it out, the old and the new, the one carnal, the other spiritual, and in their struggle tore my soul apart. If you have ever had a friendship disappoint you, you recognize yourself in Augustine's words. We have to be careful, though, when we hear Augustine talk about lust, because we tend to think about lust in narrowly sexual terms. For Augustine, lust is much more complicated than that. It is any disordered love. And what do I mean by, what does he mean by disordered? Well, I mentioned it before. It is because of lust that I seek from those I love a happiness or a beatitude that they're not able to provide me. It's not about sexual pleasure. It's about looking for a happiness that the other person can't give me. But I can also lust against God. I lust against God when I ask of Him, demand from Him a happiness, a beatitude that He doesn't offer. Uh, I work with a lot of evangelical Christian mental health professionals in, in sort of another part of my life. And one of the things that we, we talk about quite frequently is that often people will uh, commit their lives to Jesus Christ. They've been told they've been freed from sin. And then a couple of years down the road, everything goes south in their lives. And there's this horrible moment where they say, they, they begin to question their salvation because they're getting divorced or because their child's on drugs or because of this or because of that. And, you know, and Augustine would say, well, the, the reason that you're having this problem is because you're asking from God a happiness he's not going to give you. God does not offer us a life without suffering. God offers us the ability to remain faithful when we suffer. God doesn't say, I'm no longer a sinner. He says, my sin no longer defines me. But if I think that God has freed me then from suffering, or that sin, uh, that I am no longer a sinner, well, then I'm asking from God something that he is not giving me. And I have fallen into lust. So this is how friendships go wrong. Here's just a little schema. A perverted will for Augustine is a will turned away from God, a will that loves something other than God or loves God for reasons other than himself. This is important because all of us begin our relationship with God with a perverted will. Why do I love God? Because I do not want to go to hell. That's not bad. When you're starting, a toddler, an infant, is a glutton. And this is good. <laughs> because otherwise the, the infant fails to thrive. 
we begin with a perverted will. We love God for the wrong reasons. The problem is that if that's never corrected and I act on it, if I allow myself to begin to desire people, things, wealth, possessions, as something other than what they are, gifts from God. Gifts from God to be received with gratitude and to be put at the service of His glory and the salvation of the world. When I look at the people and the things in my life and I say, these make me happy and I stop, at that point, I've given myself over to lust. And these things will in time become for me substitutes for God. Eventually, lust becomes a habit. Augustine says if the lusts are not resisted, then I act on them without even thinking about it. I begin to relate spontaneously to people, events, and things in terms of how they can please me, gratify me, promote my agenda, and, well, frankly, promote me. And in time, what was a habit becomes a necessity. I become enslaved to the habit of my lust. I can no longer live except that I exploit the world around me for my own selfish ends. Ironically, the very thing that at first brought me pleasure and even happiness becomes my master, and I become its slave. In the 80s, I worked in uh, drug and alcohol units in Texas, and it was always uh, startling to me. There was a lot of heroin time in Dallas. And it always ha sort of a surprise to me when we'd, we'd do a blood draw on a heroin addict and the needle would go in and he would, he, he would, he would respond like he was getting high. This is really, an, this is the process of addiction. Sin is an addiction. It robs us of our freedom in very practical ways. So for Augustine, the problem is not the body. The problem is my will. Sin arises not out of the body, but of the will's attachment to the body, of the will's attachment to creation, of the will's attachment to everything which is not God, or God as if God were just one thing among many. And we hear this, God's the most important thing in my life. No, that's just not true. That's just silly. You have a life because of God. God is not top of the to-do list. God is not top of the good list. God is what makes the list possible. You see how it slips in. So what do we do about it? The practice of friendship. And we go till what time? <laughs> Thank you. See, I'm modeling good questions for you. Okay, good enough. How do, we, how do we become friends? There, there's a cognitive psychologist named Aaron Beck. He's one of my, my personal favorites. Uh, when I trained as a therapist, I trained in, in psychoanalysis, so very grim form of psychology. I begin with the presupposition that my client is lying and that my client wishes to enlist me to conspire in the lie. I am not, as I would tell people, I am not the hug and cuddle therapist. You're a liar. And I know that. <laughs> the only thing yet to be determined is the content of your lie and the degree to which you will try to manipulate me to conspire with you. Aaron Beck 
is not out of that tradition, but he is darn close. In a book he wrote on marriage, he says, you know, how we think determines to a large extent whether we will succeed and enjoy life or even survive. If our thinking is straightforward and clear, we are better able to reach our goals. If it's bogged down by distorted symbolic meanings, illogical reasonings, erroneous interpretations, we become, in effect, deaf and blind. We stumble along without a clear sense of where we're going or what we're doing. We are destined to hurt ourselves and others. As we misjudge and miscommunicate, we inflict pain on both ourselves and our mates and, in turn, bear the brunt of painful retaliation. To borrow from the country song, I have a thinking problem. But as Christians, this should not in any way be a surprise to us, because what does the Apostle James say in his epistle? Where do wars and fights come from among you? They do, not come from your desire, do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasure. So curiously, that psychoanalytic training I had is not nearly as dark and gloomy as it appears. It is found right there in James's epistle. Taking our cue from Beck and James, what should we do if we want to have the kind of friendships that God wants for us? How, in other words, do we reform our thinking and our behavior so that we can, be true, we can have true and lasting friendships in Christ? What we have to do first is we have to cultivate the virtues, habits of thought and action that foster friendship that are morally good and even godly. And specifically, we're concerned about the, the virtues of poverty, chastity, obedience, and stability. And I'll explain those in a minute. Taken together, these virtues help me to reform and by grace transform how I relate to people. To grow in these virtues, I need to practice certain spiritual disciplines. And I'm going to focus on prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and manual labor. These are the practical means of Christian discipleship. I have a very dear friend, we were in graduate school together, he was a Southern Baptist pastor, and he said to me one time, Father Greg, there are two great mountaintops in the Christian life, justification and sanctification. My job as a pastor is to help people go from one mountaintop to the other, but God have mercy on me, I have no idea how to do it. Well, that's, that, that, that's it. So, okay, yeah, we can all go home now. <laughs> As I said in the beginning, we're going to start with the virtues and then move to the disciplines because we want to keep in mind what our goal is. The goal of the Christian life is not to pray fast, give alms, or work with our hands. The goal of the Christian life is to love. Or, as Peter says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, for this reason give all diligence and add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his own sin. In other words, Peter says, Having now come to share in the life of God, 
do these things lest you fall back into a state which was worse than that in which you began. So let's look at some virtues. Like I said, I, I teach social ethics at our, at our seminary, and um, I always get, there's always an argument at one point in the semester about my, 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 seeming, my seeming fascination with morality being objective. That just sounds harsh. No, it's not. It's, it's, just, it's just the way it is. I mean, it's like morality is objective, gravity is objective. These things are just standard, they're given. But, you know, the, the, re the fact that people misuse objective morality to, to cause harm or shame to others doesn't mean that objective morality is bad. The virtues embodied in the monastic virtue vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience tell us the virtues that we need in order to be friends. And I'm just going to go through these kind of quickly uh, because this is the more applicative part. And so my guess is this is where, where questions usually show up. So, okay, you with me? All right, you're very polite. <laughs> I spend like the whole first year with my college group teaching them not to be polite. <laughs> Poverty. If, 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 if you're greedy, if you're covetous, if you're, if you're held by the sin of covetousness, you will argue about anything. There's a great 7th century monastic document, The Ladder of Divine Ascent, where the author John Clemicus says, the covetous man will fight to death for a needle. If I give myself over to greed, I have to have whatever it is I want. And I'm always going to be prone to conflict for this reason. This is why I need to cultivate a certain poverty. Poverty, not necessarily in the sense of going around in sackcloth and ashes, but rather a life of material simplicity. Have what you need, but don't have more. But not just material simplicity, but emotional simplicity and social simplicity. How much time do people spend on Facebook? You know, I have to simplify my life materially, emotionally, socially, and, and also spiritually. I have to stop imagining that I'm going to be the great uh, prayer warrior of this generation. Better, I should just be happy to be in the presence of God. Chastity. Now, this is a virtue that, that this is a vow that speaks specifically to sexuality, but it, it also, in a more basic sense, means my, the willingness to, have, to respect other people and to hold back my hand from exploiting them. Unchaste behavior invariably is based in the willingness of one or both parties to exploit the weakness of the other. You're lonely, you're sad, you don't think anybody loves you. Let's have sex. That's actually the argument. But there are all sorts of ways in which we exploit other people's weaknesses. So we have to cultivate chastity, we have to create a sense of respect and gratitude for others in their weakness and limitations. Obedience, that has a very bad connotation for many of us. But obedience is from a Latin word meaning to listen. To be obedient means to be prayerfully open to the will of God, to listen to God. If I really love you, if I'm really your friend, if I want that which is best for you, I want that which God wants for you. If I'm not obedient, if I'm not prayerfully open to the will of God, I can't be your friend. 
because I don't know what God wants from you because I'm not listening to God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to decide what's best for you. And you're going to like it. Stability. This is about vocational fidelity. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a priest. I'm a, before that, I was a husband. I've um, been a priest for it's going on 25 years now. And my wife will tell you most of my ministry as a priest has been extraordinarily miserable. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I investigated sexual misconduct, financial misconduct. Uh, I got like a whole cop persona thing, you know. Um, but, you know, this is what my vocation required from me. It happens in marriages, too. You know, you make plans in a marriage, and, and then life takes over, and, and you discover that things are not going the way that you expected. That's where stability is important, where we have to be faithful to our vocations. And again, if I'm not f- faithful to my vocations, to what, I, what God asks from me, how can I be your friend? So let's look at the disciplines, and we'll do this quick, quick, and then we'll have some, about 20 minutes for questions, okay? 25 minutes? Okay, good now. Prayer. We, we think about prayer as, as talking to God and telling God what we need. Uh, and this is, that's, that's not bad. But it, it, it's kind of immature, to be direct. The reason I pray is not so that I can enter into God's life, but so that I can expand my heart so that God can enter into me. By prayer, I create an empty space in my life that can be filled, that can only be filled by God. So, friendship requires that we deepen our life of prayer so that God can enter into us and so that we can be transformed from within. Fasting. I just had a conversation with my college group on fasting because we're coming up for Lent in the Orthodox Church, which means mostly we go hungry. No meat, no dairy, no alcohol. No alcohol. I have a a Mark Fondas for tequila, I do admit that. Not the stuff that co-eds do shots of. Good stuff. But fasting. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, it's probably one of the most self-centered things that I do every single day is I eat. I'm hungry. Okay, I'm going to have an apple. It's a good, it, but I'm eating, but it's nutritious. I'm not going to have a cookie because I'm a good person. I'm going to have an apple. The fact of the matter is, eating is invariably self-centered. You know, so what we have to do is learn how, by fasting, to, to break that self-centeredness. It's interesting, if you go back and you read the book of Genesis, God gave, only, God gave two commands to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But what was the other thing that they were not supposed to do? Not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Fasting is not an add-on to our lives. It was there from the beginning. And in fact... The reason that we fell is because Adam refused to fast. God said, don't eat, and Adam ate. Fasting is an inherent part of what it means to be human and so what it means to be Christian. And by fasting, we come to a better sense of our own bodily limitations. 
And as I grow in an awareness of my limitations, that gives me the opportunity to grow in understanding and compassion for you. It is a little humiliating, I have to admit, to realize at one point that my ability to be, to be charitable to another person is sometimes dependent on whether or not I had a cheeseburger. If I'm hungry, I'm grumpy. The greatest of Christian virtues, undone <laughs> by the lack of a cheeseburger. Yeah, just hard to feel good about yourself under those circumstances. Don't laugh, you're no better. So fasting teaches me my limits and it helps me appreciate yours. Almsgiving. In the early church, it was really very clear that prayer was good, almsgiving was better. In fact, James says essentially the same thing in his epistle. Oh, you're a Christian and you have faith. Well, good for you. But you neglect the poor. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that I have an obligation in Christ to care for others in their poverty, in their need. And, and James is clear, this needs to be a practical care. Almsgiving, the discipline of almsgiving teaches me the ability to care for others in a practical manner. And as well, with the other, as with the other disciplines, it also teaches me the limits of my ability to care for other people. Fact of the matter is, there's just some folks I cannot help. And as I will tell people, when I spend time with people I cannot help, it takes away time from the people that I can help. So I commit two injustices, three. One against the person who I'm help, not helping, one against the person who's being distracted, not getting the care that I could offer, and, I, I'm, and I'm committing an injustice against myself. Finally, manual labor. I gave this presentation at, a, at, a, at an academic conference, or part of this presentation at an academic conference, and there was a, a, a professor who, who put her hand up and said, does writing articles count as manual labor? No, it doesn't. <laughs> it, it really does. I mean, the whole point of manual labor is to learn how learn that I have the ability to shape the world around me in ways which are productive for other people. We are, to, to borrow from my, 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 my economist friends, we are wealth-creating machines. That's what we're wealth-creating creatures. Manual labor teaches me all the different ways in which I can reshape the world in a way which is profitable to others. The other thing it teaches me is that sometimes I just can't do stuff. No matter how good my intentions, you know, if, 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 if the board was not cut to the right length, the board was not cut to the right length. Manual labor teaches me that good intentions are not good enough. So, all right. So that's me, if you want to track me down, and it's, it's in the notes. But um, let's, let's, let's talk. So uh, we have about 20 minutes, so... 22 minutes, okay. My precise computer friend. So, questions, comments, trials, tribulations, complaints, criticisms. Why did they invite the heretic in the dress? Every once in a while, someone will come up to me on campus. It's like, what are you? I'm a Martian. A Martian? You don't think I'm a Martian? They'll just look at me. It's like, see, the problem is that you're a racist. You think Martians are green. We are not. We are all the colors of the rainbow. <laughs> yes, we, we do have antenna, but it was college. Got a little experimental. A couple of piercings went wrong. 
but I'm very ashamed about it. So um, that usually sort of freaks them out a little bit. <laughs> so, but what do y'all think? Yeah, please. Mm -mm. No need to, because everything I talked about will lead in marriage to, to intimacy. Uh, but everything I talked about that destroys friendship will destroy that physical intimacy in marriage. Um, sure, I'm stupid. <laughs> that, I mean, that's, that's really it. I mean, I, 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 um, I have unreal realistic expectations about intimacy and marriage. I mean, not me, we all do. Go ahead. No, am I not making sense? You want me to go to ask someone else? Okay. Um, but, you know, the... the, the Uh, yeah, uh, the, the, I, I, I must confess, the, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not adverse to sexual pleasure. Um, however, pleasure is never the goal mm -hmm. in anything. And the problem, the, the reason that pleasure is never the goal is because pleasure is always transitory. And the difficulty with making pleasure the goal is that pleasure is also addictive. Anyone ever work with a drug addict? The thing you work with drug addicts long enough and what you discover is that they always need more and more of the drug. Until eventually they don't need the drug for the high, they need the drug not to hurt. Um, we, we live in a culture that has so um, we live in a culture that has this, 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 this grossly unrealistic expectation about intimacy and marriage. Uh, you know, I'll talk to college students, well, Father Gregory, it's so hard not to have sex. Not with your personality. Uh. But, um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, the, 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 the problem is, is that, and anyone who's been married for any length of time knows that there are, you know, the, 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 the intimacy and the sexual intimacy in marriage ebbs and flows over time. Um, and if, 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 while acknowledging that it's an important part of marriage, it, it, it's only an important part of marriage for reasons that have nothing to do with the pleasure itself. Uh, and, and what happens is, and, I, and, and I, by the way, I go to, I go, I go to the conferences. Uh, I go to the conference not only with secular therapists, but Christian therapists. And honestly, I, I find, God forgive me, a sinner, but when I listen to the Christian therapist talk about sexuality and marriage, I am appalled. I, I, am, I, am, I, am, I am appalled to the point of rage. And I am a big guy. And I got a loud voice. And, and the reason is, is because the point is not the pleasure, the point is the person. And the pleasure ebbs and flows. And when you link anything to pleasure, you disappoint. You set yourself up for failure and tragedy. Does, does that make sense? 
without the virtues, without that relationship of friendship, of, 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 of not just care in a sort of a general sense, but a real fundamental faithful commitment to do that which is best for my wife, there is not a sufficient basis to have a conversation when issues of sexuality uh, present themselves. And what happens is, and again, Christians do this, they, they turn issues of intimacy into matters of, bio, of, of, of biomechanics. I once heard someone say in a, in a presentation, after having read the scriptures, I've decided that anything that happens between husband and wife by mutual consent is morally good. If he were talking to my sister's husband, we'd have words. That's just not true. <laughs> I mean, it isn't. There are a whole list of behaviors which are not acceptable, even if you love each other. So, anything else? We're Orthodox. We generally don't talk a lot about sex. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Okay. Where does, where does that commit? How does that addiction begin? I smoke a cigarette because someone says it's cool. Or because I want to fit in. Or because it just seems neat. It's a lie? No, because it's not about a cigarette. Um, here's another example. <sighs> it's been a long day. I'm going to go home. I'm going to have an ice cream cone. Love ice cream. Yes, I do. Yay. Eat my ice cream cone. I feel good. I think to myself later when I'm having a little bad day, you know that ice cream cone that I had last time? That, that, that made me feel pretty good. Maybe I'll have another one. Um, then maybe I think, well, maybe I'll have two. And then maybe I go through the day and I'm beginning to think, you know, it's not a bad day, but it would be a better day if I had an ice cream cone. And then suddenly the ice cream cone is the goal of the day. Now that's a silly example, and that's, but it's not a trivial example. That's how addictions, that's how sin takes hold, is that I find created things which I use as a substitute for God. Addiction is a form of idolatry. What does it say in the Psalms? They worship the creations of their own hands and they become like them. But addiction is not just to something which is physiologically harmful. I will warn you, if you think, if you limit addiction to chemicals, what you've basically said is that person over there is an addict. But over here on my side of the street, I'm a good person. Now, I assure you, we're none of us good. We all of us have our addictions. I have them. My entire family is addicted to sarcasm. You, that's probably coming as a surprise to you, <laughs> but it would. Can you talk about friendships and marriage of people who are married couples who have friends and how they balance their intimacy with each other and their intimacy with their friends? Well, yeah, they, they, they balance intimacy with, the, with other people and not having sex with them. Yeah. <laughs> Someone asked me, what's the secret to being happily married? Stop dating. Well, no, but I, I'm not kidding. Because, I, I mean, I, I'm being very serious about it. You know, marriage is, in fact, a friendship, but it is in the nature of a friendship that friendships expand. 
Um, if, if I really love someone, then what binds us together is the grace and the operation of the Holy Spirit. And, it is, in the, and it, is, it, it is in the work of the Holy Spirit that it is always expansive. And so the prayer that I used at the beginning, you know, the Spirit teaches the apostles to cast a net that c- catches the whole of cre- all mankind. So a, friend, a conjugal friendship will necessarily bear fruit, if it's healthy, in husband and wife having other friends, both personal friends and then friends with other couples. Um, and again, this is why you, you, have to be, you have to put sexual intimacy in, in, a, in a relatively minor place. You know, it, not because it's a bad thing, but because it, 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 it's, it's not the most important thing. The, the important thing is the friendship. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you know, um, when um, my wife and I got married, um, she, she had, it, was, it was the end of her junior year in college, went to a Catholic college, and we just all got married early, which, by the way, I recommend. It's, it's, it's easier. Um, it's, not like you're not, it's not like you aren't less stupid at 30. You're just stupid in deeper and, and broader ways. <laughs> But, you know, when, 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 when we got married, my wife had, like, three classes left for her senior year, so she worked as a secretary at the university uh, where we went to school. And then she went to work as a secretary at another university when I was in graduate school, and then we moved to California, and then she became a, a social worker. I loved her anyway. Um, and, you know, but, but now she's a federal prosecutor. Good for me. <laughs> And, and the reason she's a federal prosecutor, I mean, the reason, I mean you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being vain here. The reason she's a federal prosecutor is because I, 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 I delight in watching my wife succeed. You, you know, I, I have, to go back to what I said before, I, I have no use for the guy who says, yeah, I got a stupid one of low morals. It's like, yeah, good for you. You know, you're an awful person. <laughs> and I feel sorry for her. But, you know, if, if you really do love someone, you want to see their growth and development over the course of time. Uh, and, and that really needs, that, that, is the, that, is the, that is the heart of friendship. And if you are really doing that in a marriage, that will overflow to a life of, 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 of service and friendship with other individuals. Does that make sense? When, when I've worked with co- congregations where there's been misconduct, you know, I, you know I, every time I go into the congregation where there's mis- mis- been misconduct, I discover that someone in a position of authority had a concrete plan about how this was actually going to work. And then they frog-marched everybody through the plan. No sexually miscreant pastor starts as sexually miscreant. He starts as naive, and he gives himself over to being controlling, and now having now captured all of your life, he feels he has access to your wife. Um, you know, that, that is, that's the opposite of friendship, so. Um, I have a question, so like based on like kind of what you're saying, that friendship does expand. Yep. So in a marriage setting, um, and even like being careful as a single person, having friends with the opposite sex, what is your view then if you're married 
Um, uh, um, I have no friendships with women. My intimate relationships with women are limited to my, my wife, my sisters, of whom I have five, and my mom. Um, you, you know, that, that, that doesn't mean that I, I can't be, there, there can't be a certain kind of friendship with women. Um, you know, it doesn't mean I can't have warm relationships with women, but, you know, I, I, have, very, I have very clear boundaries in myself. Uh, and part of it is, is, you know, because I'm a pastor, um, I'm always in a position of, of authority relative to other people. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things that, 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 that there, it, I, I tell my, my seminarians, if you're not lonely, you're not doing it right. You should be, a pastor should be lonely. He should look out and say, wow, there are all these wonderful people in my life, and I, I cannot become intimate with them in the way in which I'm, I would be intimate with a peer because I'm not a peer. But I think when we, we talk about relationships you know, uh, between men and women who aren't married, we do need to be very, very careful uh, because there are opportunities for jealousy, for uh, sexual immorality, uh, emotional betrayal. Um, Well, um, differently about what? About friendship with members of the office. No, I, I think they, they, you know, they, they have to, I mean, there, there is a need for that kind of friendship. Um, and, but what I would step back and say, we assume that friendship means dating frequently. Yeah, I'm not really, a, I'm not really like a, a, a dating person. I mean, it's fun. I, I appreciate what, you know, going out. But, you know, I prefer that they go out in groups. Um, you know, statistically, some of the social scientific data would suggest that if I could go out on a second date with someone, I could marry that person and be happy. Um, and again, the data says when I'm ready to be married, who, I'm, who am I going to marry? I'm going to marry whoever's closest. Um, so I, mean, I, I think there's a lot of romance and, 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 and foolishness that gets involved in, in relationship, friendships between men and women. And really to be a friend in a good sense, I, I need to have a, a fair amount of self-knowledge that a lot of us, honestly, I mean, even people in their 30s and 40s will come to me and they have a poverty of self-knowledge. I mean, it, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Um, you, you don't know your, not you, but you don't, you, they don't know themselves. So, you, you know, so you have to really know yourself before you can be a friend. And so if you're talking about male-female friendships, what you mean is, if you mean something that is the fruit of, 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 of appropriate self-knowledge, great. If you mean something what typically people mean is a way to avoid self-knowledge and self-examination, no, that's just wrong. I mean, that, that's, 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 just, that's just silliness. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm aware of that. This is my eighth state. Um, people say, I live in so-and-so. It's like, I don't care. <laughs> Just give me the address, I'll put it in the GPS. <laughs> you know, I know my house, I know the university, after, like a couple of coffee shops. <laughs> um, 
You know, I, all that said, though, I mean, I, I get the idea of moving, and wow, it's really hard. But you know, I'm like my grandmother was the eldest, was one of twelve children that lived. So I'll see your I'm moving from one middle class enclave to another to most of the people I was born with died before I got to elementary school. You know, I, I mean, I, I, the the you know, it, it's just it's just always hard to make friendships. It, that's why I talk about friendship as a virtue, and this is why you need to focus on 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 on, on self knowledge and 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 growing in your relationship with Christ if you want to be a friend. You know, I have friends from college. We are very good friends. I I could hop on a plane tomorrow afternoon after liturgy, fly down to Dallas. And boom, it'd be like it was, I was there yesterday. Distance has nothing to do with it. It's just hard. So, uh, again, I'm not trying to minimize the difficulty, but we need to take sort of a broader historical view. It's just always been hard. So, and you're probably not going to die of some disease in the next couple of years. So, you got some advantages. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of the only friendship relationship that you, you, you kind of see? Well, well you know, what, 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 I mean, what I'm, I'm talking about is a lot of times people use friendships with members of the opposite sex mm-hmm. as a substitute for growing up and growing in self-knowledge and self-possession. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, it, 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 you know, honestly, it's just more fun to have a relationship um, than it is to, to understand who I am. Uh, and I, I must confess a certain hesitance even to use the word relationship because it, 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 it it's, um, any mental health professionals in here? Yay, okay. One of the things that you learn when you're doing, at least when you're learning how to do therapy, is that the whole purpose of therapeutic language is to undermine the perspective of the client. Because, I mean, really, all kidding aside, the client comes in with all sorts of really weird ideas. And so what you got to do is learn how to get the client to be suspicious of his own self-apprehension. So a lot of times I notice that Christians adopt therapeutic or, or psychological language. And I, when you do that, you, you, you've, you've, you've lost. You're, you're lost. Talk about friendship in the classical sense. You know, if you want to have a friend with a woman in which you are both Virtuous people, you see virtue in her, she sees virtue in you, and you encourage each other in virtue. I think that's great. Invite me to the wedding. (laughs) But why would you not marry her? Oh, because I'm not attracted to her. Mm, No, that means you you don't have particular sexual feelings that you, uh, you expect should be there. What I'm suggesting to you is that much of our conversation about this, this topic has been already so uh, skewed by an appeal to psychology and sociology. Interest full disclosure, I am a full member of the American Psychological Association. I go to the meetings, I read the books. You know, so I'm not, you know, I'm not adverse to the profession, but you gotta understand the limits. And if I may, to speak very directly, and forgive me for, if, I, if I offend, but I've noticed evangelical Christians as a class, as a group, you are much more comfortable with the language of the social and human sciences than you are with philosophy and theology. That's not going to work for you. 
you must understand the language of classical Christian thought. I gave a presentation where I used the word passion in Greek, pathos. And someone said, but, but I have a passion. It's like, no, no, that, that's not what the word means. <laughs> passion means that which sweeps me away and robs me of my freedom to act. A pathos is that which, to which I am subjected. You do not have a passion for evangelism. You might have a call to be an evangelist. But if evangelism is a compulsion, you're not doing it right. Because, of course, in Christ we are free. Does that make sense? I, I, I didn't mean to go that way. I didn't want to. Let me, let, there's a man behind you who hasn't asked, and then I'll come back to you. And I love your hat, by the way. It's very scary. <laughs> I, uh, I find what you're saying here really interesting because it's making me process my own thoughts. And, and, and it's essentially this, that uh, other people are never going to meet my expectations. Nope. And neither are things that were taught. I mean, you all want to hear about sexuality? Never going to meet your expectations. If you are sexually active, you are going to have a really hard time thinking back about when you had some real pleasure in your sexual experience. Because pleasure is something that you will never experience. When you really come right down to it, you're never going to satisfy your pleasure because your imagination is going to make it more yeah, it, yeah. I mean, actually, in, in positive psychology, for example, there, there's a conversation. One of, that's one of the great insights of positive psychology, is that 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 we always require, even in healthy relation, even in healthy pleasures, require greater stimulation. Uh, and so, if, if 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 pleasure is the goal, you are simply going to disappoint yourself again and again and again. You have to look for some other some other deeper foundation, and that is that that's virtue. That's being a, a good person. And remember, the, the virtuous person is the person who is living his or her life in harmony with the will of God, which is to say, if I am virtuous, I am the man that God has created me to be. And so then I move through life with, with much greater ease and peace um, because this is not my concern. That is not my concern. But this is. Yes, sir. And this, you got all right. Anything else? Going once, going twice. All right. Oh, lunchtime. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.